Well, back in the Windy City. So now on East Leeds FM, we're very excited to have the first of what will hopefully be a series of conversations between Leeds and the wider world. And today, we're going to be talking to Chicago and specifically to Lee Bay, the author of a fantastic book, uh, Southern Exposure, photographs and essays about the south side of Chicago. Uh, Lee is also on the editorial board of the Chicago Sun-Times. And joining Lee in the conversation, we have Rachel Unsworth, uh, urban geographer, uh, author as well, and uh, for East Leeds FM, our resident geographer for these past months during coronavirus lockdown. So first, hello, Lee. Rachel. Good to be here. Hello. Chicago and Leeds, and particularly the south sides of both cities, we can talk about the cities in general, but there's some really, really poignant, interesting parallels. And as myself, a Chicagoan who came to Leeds, something I'm quite interested in. But let's begin, maybe Lee, just for someone listening here in Leeds who doesn't have much sense of how Chicago divides up, how would you describe what the South Side is in relation to the rest of the city? Well, you know, so the South Side of Chicago, uh, if, you're, if you were to look at a map of Chicago, uh, the South Side would be sort of the lower two thirds of the map, right? Well, um, south of downtown. And, um, and it is actually the larger of Chicago's three sides. Chicago has a south side, north side, a west side. Typically, we don't have an east side, right? And you probably know this, uh, Tony, as well as, as, as anyone, Rachel as well. Um, the, uh, the Chicago River, which runs east and west downtown, that splits into two uh, branches, one north and one south, sort of is the, the, the orientation point of the city. So the east side of Chicago is the lake, so we don't have an east side. So of the three sides of Chicago, um, Chicago uh, the south side is the largest, uh, but often, as, as we'll talk about, uh, the most overlooked and the most economically distressed. And your book, Southern Exposure, and I know, Rachel, you've been looking at it as well. Um, there have been a number of books about the south side in recent, recent years. Natalie Moore has a great book about the south side of Chicago. But in terms of really shining a spotlight on Chicago architecture, both the past and then thinking about how it might evolve in the future, um, it's really a landmark book. So first, tell us a bit about the book, and then maybe, Rachel, I know you've been looking through it, things that struck you about the south side of Chicago or questions that may have come up from looking at Lee's book. So but first, how did the book come to be? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I guess spiritually it comes to be, it came to be because I'm a Southsider. I was born here. Uh, I've lived most of my, I guess, 43 of my 50, soon to be 55 years here. And, um, and you just, you, and you just, you know, this, this is the homeland, if, if you will. Um, and all, the issue has always been, there is one narrative 
that's told about the South Side, two narratives, which is crime and disinvestment. And it, and it, and it creates uh, this feeling. Um, I mean, no matter, I was in Berlin uh, or Amsterdam, I should say, 15 years ago. And I meet a guy at an outdoor record uh, swap and we're talking and, um, and he says, where are you from? And, and, I, and I said, from Chicago, he was from, he was from Amsterdam. And he says, oh really, uh, what part of Chicago? And I said, the South side. And the first thing he says is Al Capone and violence. And I was like, well, you know, Al Capone has been dead for a number of years and you know, but, but that's, the, that's the, the thing people have. So the idea was to say that there's another uh, narrative alongside those better, those well-told narratives, which is, it's the home of some of the finest architecture in Chicago. And then also this history of Chicago, that when we think about what makes Chicago, Chicago, um, what, what made Chicago um, go from this um, lakeside, um, small trading village, if you will, to becoming one of, the, one of the major cities of the 20th century, it was the South Side of Chicago, the industry, the politics, the people that catapulted the city to that level. And to be able to talk about that in the book all together and mix that little memoir as well was, was what uh, the book tried to do. Yes, that was a, a very good title, I thought, Southern Exposure, talking about the city and its uh, and beautiful photographs of, of these remarkable buildings instead of doing what you uh, refer to uh, as a, a dereliction porn or as it was in fact. Um, and then also a little bit of exposure of how come you were writing about it and taking those photographs so we get a little bit of your life woven in there as well. Uh, makes for an unusual book actually. And uh, the, the buildings are so different from, you know, you say people always instantly think of Al Capone when you mentioned the South Side. Um, if, if people have an image in their head of what Chicago looks like as a tourist destination, they'll think of, of skyscrapers and the history of Chicago as being the place with the very first skyscrapers. But it's so different on the South Side, isn't it? Um, and, and so many different styles of building. Um, how, did, how did you go about uh, choosing from all the, the many buildings that you could have included? You know, this was a tough part. It's like, you know, so I have three daughters, right? And so it's like, which ones do you love the best? Well, I love them all. If I could write them out of them all, I would have, you know, all the buildings, I, I would have. So the criteria that I use for the buildings is, you know, a couple of things. One is I wanted to show buildings that would surprise people. I wanted people, I had this image in my mind that someone's throwing through the book and they're like, what the hell? Why don't I know about this building? What? what? You know, and I, so I wanted to pick buildings that were visually beautiful, that were unusual, that I thought were overlooked, uh, obviously overlooked, um, and, and, and sort of put all that together. I mean, and, and, and also I wanted to pick buildings that were in use because the narrative is the South Side is just this mile after mile of abandoned buildings when it, when, when it there really isn't the case. And so, I mean, so it was that element of surprise. I also wanted to include buildings that were by architects that made Chicago famous, um, Holaburton Root, uh, or Burnham and Root, I should say, a church in the uh, back of the Yards community where the stockyards used to be, uh, a Frank Lloyd Wright house in the far edge of the city, you know, to say that, listen, the, you know, these people that you know, these architects that you know, they did work here too, and, and, and come, come look at this. So all of that is kind of put into the stew uh, to come up with what you saw. 
Oh, fantastic. Um, and of course, because it was a very different kind of area from the late 19th century compared with the area that became downtown, it developed in a different, a different way, a different scale, and it's, it's remained human scale. I mean, it's the downside of, of actually having a different economic trajectory, but it does mean that some of those buildings still uh, exist instead of having been overwritten by much bigger footprints and much taller structures. So um, but then there's the conundrum, though, of how to make those buildings still have a function and sing economically and in terms of their service to the people who live there and can be attracted there without then making them so valuable that it then starts to oust people from those areas. So I wonder if you can say a bit about that really difficult topic about urban regeneration as we refer to it. Um, where you've got the makings of, you know, you've got what we might call heritage gems that can be the, the, the catalyst for bringing the place up again, but doing it in a way that doesn't then mean that those who are still managing to live there are ousted by rising values. You know, this is the question of the day, obviously. Um, and, and, and you see, you see that gentrification, as we, call, you know, progressively often call it here, uh, particularly in the city, you, you see that happening, particularly in areas that are closer to downtown. Um, the one thing, the, the, um, the good thing about the South Side, the thing that helps, how to say this, the thing that helps rapid rapid regentrification from happening is also the reason why, um, it hasn't happened already, which is the sheer size of um, the, of the South Side. It's huge. I mean, we tend to think of it even here in Chicago. I've surprised many Chicagoans when I told them that the South Side of Chicago alone was the physical size of the city of Philadelphia, right? Um, and, and they're like, it's that big? Yes. So because of that, there's a lot of room, uh, you know, to grow, if you will. And, and then there's been a population decrease, particularly of African-American residents um, over the past 20 years. So, so it's like a suit in, in many cases. It's now a few sizes too big. So there's room to increase um, and to rebuild the South Side without displacing people. Uh, the question is, is there a will, particularly among developers and City Hall, to put that kind of investment in? The book argues yes, and to do it. And um, we're beginning to see some elements of that under the new mayor, uh, Lori Lightfoot, who had just got elected when I turned in the manuscript to the book. Yeah, so um, you need the right kind of leadership. And you also made the point in the book about needing the buildings to have a, what do you, we, we call it building listing here. What do you call it in Chicago? Uh, to be to, to have landmark status landmark status that's right so that they um can't be they certainly can't be demolished and can't be materially altered from how they are now and then you've got this wonderful sort of well like what i refer to here in leeds as the open air exhibition of, of buildings from different eras of very contrasting kinds that you've included in the book and as you said that's only a selection of what can be seen there and then stitching all that together um are, yes, unfortunately, some places that have gone downhill, but also you've got the most fantastic network of, 
of parks and uh, green threads um, along watercourses and uh, along um, and other lines. And, and you do have, not all of the lines still in place, but, but transit as well, crucially, don't you? Public transport. Uh, I'm sorry. You have public I, transport, transit, as you call it, call it public transport. You know, we, 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 we do. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, again, uh, public transit, public transport in the south side is tough because it's so large and many lines, bus lines, tr you know, former streetcar lines, have, you know, are, are, have been, are gone. The city has not begun to put those back um, uh, in recent years. So you saw in the book, perhaps, um, the terminus for the, the red line, one of the city's major um, elevated train lines. Um, we, we, so these things are, 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 are good to see. Uh, but the, the park systems on the south side, you know, I could easily have written another book arguing that the park system on the south side is the best in the city outside of, outside of downtown. Um, you know, Frederick, you know, the, the masterpiece of it all is uh, Calvert Law and, and, uh, and Frederick Law Olmsted's um, kind of twin parks, Washington Park, which many of you might know is really close to the University of Chicago. And there's Midway Plaisance, a, um, a green sort um, that runs down the middle of the street. In fact, the street flanks it. I mean, it's a very wide green strip that runs a mile toward the lake and links with Jackson Park, which is where the World's Fair, 1893 World's Fair. This is really world-class park development here. And, um, and the idea is to um, make sure those are, those are preserved. The city does a good job of that. Um, and, and, and when possible, not encroached upon, which gets to the Obama Library, which I guess we could talk about if you like as well. But what there really are, and, and, then, and then there really are these great spaces around the south side. You know, there's one park that I didn't mention, or did I? No, I did not mention, um, which is Sherman Park, which is in, um, which was once a working class neighborhood on the southwest side of the city. Um, neighborhood is probably one of the poorest now. But this park, which is by the Olmsted brothers, these were um, Olmsted's sons somehow, although it's Olmsted brothers, I never quite figured that out. And this is one of, you know, two dozen just jewels, small versions of Grant Park that are, that are kind of there for the working class. I mean, um, there's, there's, a, there's a landscape architect here in Chicago, Alf, Alfred Caldwell. He lived to be almost 100, so he only passed away about a decade ago or thereabout. Um, he did, did some great work in the 30s and 40s around Chicago, but he wrote, he was a poet almost in his writing. And he said that the city parks are for people without Buicks. And he's talking about the people who can't get away to their uh, hideaway place in, on the Lake Shore in Indiana, but working class and the need to maintain these spaces. And the city, but most importantly, the residents around these places uh, have really pushed to make sure that, that, that maintain, that's maintained. Well, that's great. I mean, I know we're all impressed here. One of the other things people tend to know about Chicago, if they know anything, is about the Millennium Park, which was you know, a huge expense. But I mean, that just goes to show that over, the, over the, the, all these decades, the priority that's been given to green space, and Tony will know from having visited the South Bank in Leeds, that we haven't yet got decent modern green space in the city centre, but we are about to get a park that will be called Air Park, 
which will be a substantial area of green space just south of the river. But, you know, we've had to wait. And it means that actually when you look at the population stats here, there are a remarkable number of people who don't live within 10 minute walk of good green space because we've allowed that um, organic growth of the city over you know decades and a couple of centuries without having strategic approach to having that green space and I think Chicago has definitely looks as on the map you know you can just tell on the map that he's obviously had a very different approach to providing for green space as the city expanded. You know, so true. And, and, and it's interesting. One of the surprises of the book was, for me at least, was how much private developers, a big of a role they played in either creating these spaces or setting them aside, setting them aside when they developed neighborhoods so that, so that the city, the park district could then come in as partners uh, in a way and, and develop them as parks. And, you know, we, in, in, our, in our minds, we're taught the heroic um, uh, idea behind the Burnham plan uh, here in Chicago and this downtown fathers, if you will, in the, in the early 1900s, basically working with Daniel Burnham to plot out the city to come. We tend to think that that's where, where much of that came from, the green space. And it's amazing that that wasn't the case. Um, it was private enterprise actually looking to uh, increase the value of the homes and places they were built near, nearby who incentivized this, which is as Chicago a story as you can really get in, in a way. That, that's fantastic. So instead of people thinking of green space as being, oh, we're giving up all this land that could be densely developed, they understand the sort of um, coexistence of different kinds of value. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, I'm thinking of this dialogue between Leeds and Chicago, there's one quite specific uh, instance of, of communication and I think mutual influence that comes up in your book, in fact, Lee, which is about the wider Leeds space. And that's the parallel between Saltaire, which is outside of Leeds, but within the orbit of Leeds, and Pullman on the far south side. Um, and so that's a place where there's both in terms of influence in the past, but also some possible parallels thinking into the future about those how they get developed but maybe Lee if you want to describe a bit of what Pullman was and is and in turn Rachel maybe Saltaire and how those two speak to each other perhaps you know this is a and thank you for for noticing for noticing that it's a great parallel and it's funny I live in Pullman right so I uh, I'm kind of up, up close to this in, in a way but but like so so Pullman um you know uh was uh, the, the town at the time, which ends up getting um, annexed by the city within a few years, uh, built in the 1880s and 1890s. The, the main piece is the, um, is the, uh, is the factory, um, which George Pullman, the industrialist, inside this factory, he built um, these luxurious rail cars, which, uh, which you know, I hope uh, America settled, I shouldn't say settle the West, but, but that's the word that's used. Um, and becomes, I think even, and uh, am I right, even in the UK today, or at least for decades, the word Pullman was almost like the way we eat Cadillac in, in, uh, in America. If something is great, we say it's the Cadillac of clothes or something like that. I think Pullman might be used the same way because these places were so luxurious. And so to build that, he needed a, a workforce. George Pullman needed a workforce close to the factory. So he built this town for it. 
rather than it being, you know, this sort of shanty town that you would get, you know, if you were Nestle or something, you know, building the, you know, you know, making the, uh, their product, whatever he built, he, he, there's a planned city, small city of, of, of about 2000. Like Saltaire, right? Um, it's close to water, right? Uh, there's at the time there was Lake Calumet and the Calumet River, and uh, the workforce is close by. And you know, um, it ceases to be a factory, but still goes, you know, uh, a, a unified piece. Um, continues as a factory, although it becomes a Chicago neighborhood. Continues as a factory into 1980. Um, and, um, and now there's an effort now with the federal government, National Park Service, to really make it, uh, make the, the, the former factory a, uh, a visitor center and a tourist attraction. We, we, we get tourists here all the time, but this is a way to formalize it and really hopefully do what you guys are doing, uh, have done um, with, uh, with Saltaire. That's right. And then these very special places can be stitched into a, a circuit of tourist destinations. And then you need the service services that go alongside the main attractions, which means then there are more people to work in those services, which then creates demand for some of those vacant lots or um, sites, as we would call them. Uh, and, and so really the visitor economy, the experience economy can be a major catalyst for other things can't it so i mean salt air you've presumably have you visited yourself lee i still haven't despite him oh. written about it and, and i wrote about it for the sun times when we would did a campaign on pullman 20 years ago but i've never visited them so. oh well i insist when you eventually come to the uk tony and i will have to take you on a special trip because it is remarkable i mean people they're making some negative comments about that version of a paternalistic industrialism. Uh, but on the other hand, the workers were very significantly better off in terms of their working conditions and their living conditions than they had been in the extremely poor um, conditions in Bradford itself. So, you know, doing these um, model villages around the, the new, newly made factories rather than just a, a whole clutter of industrial buildings developed piecemeal uh, was a, a very, you know, a great departure from what had gone before. I think uh, Saltaire is a little bit before the Pullman development, isn't it? So from the 1870s and so on. But uh, yeah, yes. Um, so very small houses, but for the times, you always have to think, you know, don't just see it with uh, today's eyes, don't you? Uh, for the times, it was a distinct improvement on some other things. And, and great that, that, those, that they still exist today and are actively used. So um, how do you think um, with some of the other places in the South Side could be brought into that kind of, you know, a new set of uses um, and, and stitched together with Pullman to make, to really draw people down into the South Side again? Well, this is a good question. I mean, there are, there are a few kind of nodes like this that, that you can kind of um, uh, improve upon. I mean, one, the huge one is, of course, what's, what's, what's commonly called Bronzeville. Uh, this is an area south of downtown that um, has been historically, well, for the past century, uh, predominantly black neighborhood uh, or, or a set of predominantly, predominantly black neighborhoods that really has this incredible history. I mean, there could be a book about Bronzeville, you know, this thick. It could be like Dr. Rose Ragtime, Ragtime in terms of all these, in, you know, um, 
people, famous people, Louis Armstrong, Sam Cooke, Dinah Washington, uh, you know, who, uh, who intersected there in these kind of magical years between the wars. Uh, uh, and um, this area, that area, um, there were eight or nine landmark buildings there, uh, uh, significant buildings, um, an armory, uh, you know, uh, meeting places, uh, places like that that spoke to Brownsville's heyday. Um, that were landmarked in the 80s, or at least placed on the National Register, so they were nationally, federally landmarked, but not protected like, like local landmarks are. The difference is, is that a city landmark um, controls the demolition permit and the building permit, which is the hammer that the city can use to maintain the building. Uh, uh, national uh, Register status is, is more prestigious, but doesn't have that kind of protection to keep a building from being demolished. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, and with Bronzeville, um, these buildings were given national register status, but weren't given landmark status. And at the time in the 80s and 90s, Bronzeville was, was going through, well, the 80s especially, was going through a tough, well, had, it was coming out of a 40-year period of decline. And um, so residents, the city finally got on the um, dime about this, uh, began to finally landmark these buildings, give them landmark status. And because they were all vacant, began to direct resources there uh, that allow these buildings to be, most of these buildings to be reused. But that's a place where, you know, so Louis Armstrong comes from Louisiana, um, lands at the old um, Illinois Central Station on the edge of downtown, no longer there, and heads to Bronzeville, just three miles south, and joins King Oliver's band and, be, and essentially becomes Louis Armstrong. Right here in Chicago, we think about it, it, it being in New York, or, or but he, as we say, um, sometimes the uh, the organized crime, the outfit here, how, how you made your bones, how you became, you know, uh, where you were, you know, the, the you know an entity. He he did it here, um, and then you've got you know this string of interesting individuals, John Johnson on the economic side, who founded Ebony and Jet magazine, uh, which were these huge for the 20th century, profoundly important magazines published by African-Americans about African-Americans that talked about everything from, uh, you know, our latest successes to, you know, Lena Horne to Martin Luther King to the civil rights movement. I mean, so all of this, these threads, you know, what we commonly know about African-Americans, African-American entertainment, you know, Quincy Jones, uh, the, uh, the, the producer, uh, comes from uh, Brownsville. I mean, all of these kind of people. So, uh, and people want to hear these stories. People want to see these stories. And, and many of these former nightclubs and things are gone now, but there's enough there that you can begin to stitch together and begin to tell a story. I give tours uh, uh, on occasion about this. And even pointing to nothing, and, and, you know, this is where a club was, but now it is, and it's a vacant lot, I'm sorry. People are still, they still want to know. They do indeed. I mean, I, I say, Lee, when I'm doing tours here in Leeds, I say, um, actually, I don't do ghost tours as such, but actually, most of one's tours are, in a, in a sense, ghost tours. You're conjuring up the spirit of what was there before and showing the continuing relevance of that having 
been part of, you know, that's where we've come from. That's why we are the place we are today, because these significant people were here. These buildings were put up. They were used in these ways. The uses changed over time. And you can, by, by giving people the tours, inspire further dynamism as well, I hope. Um, to, to make people value their, their city more or perhaps become the, the investors of, of tomorrow. This is being very idealistic. But you never know, do you? You never know who might get an idea for um, being the, the next uh, mover and shaker in, in that district, inspired by what's gone before. Exactly. Do, do you find in your tours over the years that the audience gets younger? Oh, um, I haven't been doing public tours in this in this way for very long yet, uh, but I do have people of all different ages. But I have to say, there is a tendency for it to be towards the older age groups. Of course, this year has been uh, uh, not so easy. I've just started doing virtual tours uh, now. I just uh, did a webinar at lunchtime, and there is, of course, a way of of, of joining together the virtual and the real. So you can have a course, so, you know, very much greater reach if you're doing some sort of version of a virtual tour and then um, whet people's appetite for coming on a, on a real tour later. That's the, the great combination. So, and also having a book that people can, can see either before or afterwards or both is, uh, is great. So all the, the different media, different ways of, of, of hooking people into being enthusiastic about the real place. Um, which is fantastic. I can't wait to come to Chicago now. Uh, my daughter lives in Washington, D.C. Um, now, having moved from Nashville, and uh, I'm, I'm waiting for her to take me on a guided tour of Washington, and then I shall be um, off on my travels to see uh, some of the great cities of, uh, of North America. It, it's worth the, worth the trip. My, my daughter uh, lived in Birmingham, I'm sorry, Manchester, uh, for uh, just, she just came back earlier this year, and so she was, she was excited about me being on this, my oldest daughter being in this, in this broadcast. This is great, but, but uh, yeah, but I, I, you know, I, I find when I first started doing this, you know, the, the crowd was maybe a little older, people who could remember the, the heyday of Bronzeville or they were kids during the heyday of Bronzeville. But what I'm finding in, in recent years, and I mean, maybe the past two years, is that the crowd is getting younger. I mean, I'm, I mean, younger than me, and I'm getting people who are in their 30s and in their 20s wanting to know the history of these places. And, and that bodes well to what you said about, you know, you never know who's being inspired by these histories and who can, who can then in the future uh, begin to, you know, bring some of this, this renaissance about, yeah. Well, speaking of conjuring the past and having just talked about Bronzeville, maybe time for a little music interlude. And Lee, I don't know if, since we talked about Louis Armstrong, do you have a particular, do you have a hot fives or hot seven track that you particularly like from those, those years between the wars? You want to suggest? Oh, you know what? You know what? Um, let me, f I mean, can I? You can come just, back to this. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, gosh, I got hope. I do. <laughs> can, I, can I just say that? I do. And then maybe send you the clip. Uh, yeah. Because there's, there's a few people. Um, there's, a, there's Louis Armstrong. Uh, obviously, that's who's, 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 who's worth looking at and listening to in terms of what he did here uh, with King Oliver's, Oliver's band. There's also Sun Ra, um, who, um, uh, you know, performed here, was you know, from here, you know, uh, attained his fame here. Um, so, that, so there's a few. There's a, there's, there's a few. 
the young broadcasters here in East Leeds FM, we have a group of young musicians and they just did a short documentary about Sun Ra a few weeks ago where they were listening to and learning about Sun Ra's music and the, and the orchestra, which was great fun. So we'll here take a brief pause. We're gonna hear a little, first a little bit of Louis Armstrong uh, from Chicago days, from his time in, in the city uh, just after the First World War. And then we'll be back for more conversation with Lee Bay and Rachel Unsworth. Music comes in. How, how's everyone in terms of where we want to go next? Any, any, any preference on another next direction or two? I know we, we're already at. I thought we were going to say that we've um, had our time. Uh, no, no. Are you fine to do another, say, 15 minutes or so? I mean, I, I'm having a great time. I could keep this <laughs> here. All night. Okay. I'm here as long as you guys are. Okay, so I'll back announce the song. And Rachel or Lee, did either of you have a, a next direction you wanted to go? There's a few things I thought, maybe a little more on the Obama Library at some point, which maybe the parallels with the, with the British Library coming to South Leeds, there's, there's some interesting yeah, uh, parallels yeah. with that. Um, I wanted to touch maybe on schools and especially that, you know, the, the, the uh, vocational high school where, where you went to school, Lee, in, in, in the book. <laughs> or just schools on the south side and maybe schools in Leeds briefly. Um, and uh, somehow to well, get in that you and your father driving around in the car somehow, I wanna bring that into the conversation that, which you opened the book with, which is great. Um, and then because the, the 95th red line stop at the end of the red line has a radio station in it, I think I wanna mention, mention that as a radio station myself. The idea of a public transportation um, I don't know if you came across that in the book yet, Rachel, but the, the new stop on the, the L, the, the elevated subway, the elevated transit system, has a radio station built into the, the, the transit station, um, which I think- Well, Tony, why don't you, you do, this, you do this next bit then, with those topics, because I've had a, you know- I don't, no, yeah, well, yeah. Those are a few things that I thought would just be great to, to bring up, but- uh, Yeah, so yeah. you fire, fire ahead and I'll, yeah. uh, I'll listen. Let's do a little bit. On, let's go with schools first, and then maybe we'll end with the two the two libraries because that's that's both two projects that are that are happening uh, in the near future in both cities, so they could weave together. And, and Rachel, I know I know you've been with the um, uh, what's the building the Temple Temple Works, right, where the British Library is going in. Okay, so here we go. The music will just finish. So that was. Louis Armstrong and back here on East Leeds FM with Lee Bay, uh, author of Southern Exposure and editorial board member of the Chicago Sun-Times, talking to us from Chicago and joined by Rachel Unsworth, uh, also author, urban geographer, and our, our resident geographer here on East Leeds FM. So maybe let's talk a bit about schools and architecture and infrastructure. And your book, Lee, has a number of fantastic schools on the south side. Uh, particularly the school you went to, which is the, uh, maybe talk a bit about that and how that fits into the fabric. Well, you know, when, when we talk about um, the South Side, uh, essentially making Chicago, Chicago, the school buildings kind of tell that story where the, from, from 1910 or so, uh, through the 1970s, or through the 1960s into 1970, um, there are, Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of public schools. Um, well, let's see, we call them high schools, uh, but you, call, you have a different name. I think high school is a college where you are, right? I mean, um, these are, oh, uh, you know, so you go to school from kindergarten, kindergarten to eighth grade, 
and then you change schools and you go to four years of, of another school, a high school, and then you go to college, right? So the, the first, the eight years that you go plus the four, tons of public schools were built to um, educate the, the, the migrants from the South, the immigrants from other countries who came to settle on the South side to work in the factories that were here and to, to work in the steel yards that were here and that kind of thing. And despite the fact that the school's being built at a you know, pretty rapid clip, architecturally, they were really good, uh, given the fact how many there, that they were built. I mean, there's Art Deco styles, there's, there's other neoclassical styles, there's even modernism uh, at the dawn of modernism, uh, or just after was that, that, that are here. And the schools, oddly enough, are in great shape, largely. It's one of those untold stories that the, um, the school system here, particularly beginning in the 90s, not so much when I was a student in the 70s and 80s, really began to take care of these buildings. And this is probably part of the legacy of Richard M. Daly, the son of Richard J., who was the mayor for 22, for 22 years from the early, late 80s into, you know, into the early 2000s, where he really saw these places as, as assets uh, that he put money into. Um, so Chicago, Chicago Vocational High School is a, essentially a trade school, I guess you might, might call it. Uh, that was um, a huge school, second largest in Chicago, uh, designed to educate a new workforce for the 20th century. It was built in 1941, opened in 1941. And um, so, you know, everything from auto shop to wood shop to everything you could possibly do with your hands. My major was, uh, when I was there in the late, in the, in the 80s, uh, my major was graphic arts print shop, right? We you know, so you can learn to operate a printing press and do all these kind of things. And rather than to shove this um, school or create this school and just, and it's on the far south side of the city too, far from the skyscrapers of downtown, but they built this incredible art deco building for it that sprawls, um, you know, uh, one, you know, two blocks in one direction and another block and a half uh, in other directions. And is really first class architecture that most people in Chicago don't see. Um, because it's far south and kind of tucked away in its corner. Um, but, but really, the idea was to use architecture to um, bring some kind of cachet and nobility and respect to this new kind of school uh, for the city. Really great piece of architecture. Yes, it is. I've seen the pictures in, in the book. It's uh, very original as well. It's, it's not just out of a, a standard, oh, right, we'll have one of those, is it? It's, it's a, a unique a unique design. Very much so. The only school like it, you know, some of the great schools, the good schools in Chicago are built on, or built with uh, their prototypes, right? I mean, they were built from the same prototype. This one is purely unique. No other school like it in Chicago. Uh, and, you know, again, was a way to sort of uh, respect and uh, uh, give honor to the unique mission that this school had. And, and you um, subscribe to that view, do you, that, that really good architecture doesn't have to be massively grandiose and pompous, but good architecture does do that thing of, of raising people's spirits, raising aspirations, making people feel, ah, oh, they bothered to make an effort with this building where we're going to have our schooling. I'm going to, you know, rise to the challenge kind of thing. Do you think, do you actually think that works? I, I think so. As, as I say in lectures, uh, particularly my time at, at Chicago Vocational, there's this uh, athletic entrance that's in the school, which is, you know, this kind of curved uh, entrance with, um, I thought maybe they had the book near, well, nearby, but you guys know what it looks like. 
uh, which has these great um, fluted columns, two stories, two and a half story flute, fluted columns. And, you know, we, we would go there just to play basketball. And we felt like, like Roman warriors going, there you go. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, you know, going through there and, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it does. And, and, and the good thing about it is, so when these buildings are demolished, that feeling has gone with them as we, as we all know. But when they're restored, when the city comes back again and says, look, we're going to take care of this building, we're going to restore it, it, it reignites that same feeling, Rachel, where you feel like, well, they, they see us, they, they care about us. Um, so the, the same feeling is there when the buildings are, are put back together again. So Chicago and Leeds also have another architectural urban infrastructure um, set of projects in common, which both cities are in the process of either creating or exploring the creation of new libraries that are going to have national and even international significance. So the Obama Presidential Library on the south side of Chicago and on the south side of Leeds, the, the possibility, a lot of discussion around the British Library opening up uh, a northern branch around digital uh, collections here in Leeds. And so. Maybe, Rachel, do you want to jump in and just talk a bit about what the British Library Project is? And then maybe Lee can, can follow up with the state of the Obama Library and how the two might inform each other. The project for the British Library to come to Lee's, it, it's, um, it will be a great relief if it does happen because not only will we have access to the British Library here in the city, but it will be a use for this gem of a building that is grade one listed which is very rare the top grade obviously um, but because of I mean, ironically because of that listing it's been very difficult to find a use for the building for many many years it essentially hasn't been fully used since the 1880s um, it's had some temporary uses um, over the over the intervening time but it's the most remarkable building uh, put up by the second generation, really, of the famous flax spinning family, the Marshalls. And it's, um, it was the biggest room in the world when it was put up in the, in the 1830s to early 40s um, with top lighting. So there are glass domes, about 60 glass domes to create the, the light um, source on this single story mill building. It was novel, very unusual in its day. And at the time when the British Library had not long since opened the circular, the famous circular reading room in London uh, within the British Museum, um, a commentator at the time said, you shouldn't have done it like this. This is not how a modern library should be. You should have done something more like temple works in Leeds. This is what it's like. So with this extraordinary architecture that's um, based on a real temple in Egypt. Um, so I've seen this before. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's a stunning building, but has, has lain derelict itself. And although some of the area just to the north of it has been magnificently brought back to life, old mill buildings and a, and a set of foundry buildings, this building itself has been has languished. But now we are, we are hopeful. Uh, the, the company CEG, who own it now, are very keen to make it work. Um, so we're hopeful. Now, the presidential libraries of, of uh, the USA are a very different phenomenon, aren't they? Is it right that every president uh, does something along these lines? 
They do. I think every president since every president since Roosevelt, actually maybe Hoover or someone got got some posthumously, right? I mean, they get the library after they they, they die. But typically, what happens is uh, a president uh, uh, toward the end of his term uh, begins to sort of map out the presidential library that he's going to get. And you know, typically, there are three pieces to it. There's the um, the typical, the, the typically uh, museum piece, which is like where all the cool stuff from his administration goes, the limousine that he had, uh, if, he's, if, if, uh, if Air Force One is retired in his presidency, if that version is retired, that may go in there. I think Reagan has an Air Force One in his library. So it becomes the cool stuff that you see. So there's that. And then the third, second piece is that so there's an archive, right? Which usually scholars have, and this is where all the papers are, right? And then there's the third piece, um, which is sort of like an institute. Uh, there's usually an auditorium space and scholars and programmers. And, and, and in a way, it's a president's ability. Uh, it allows a president to extend his presidency um, beyond the life of the presidency. So whatever the president was passionate about, or uh, the things he was passionate about, um, becomes programming for the Institute. So scholars from all over, authors from all over, they all come. And these three pieces come together. Um, yes, tell me. No, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were waving, sorry. I was waving my son. So, so with, the, with the Obama library, uh, you know, these kind of things are coming, are coming together. The problem is, and it hasn't been built yet, it's still in the planet, it's still in the pre-construction, it's not even pre-construction. It's not been built yet, it was supposed to be built by now, is that they, decided to put this library in a public park, actually in Jackson Park, the historic park that I mentioned before. And as a result, um, a kind of funny thing had been happening. Southsiders by and large, led by the University of Chicago, have been saying, Mr. President, you know, and, and to, you know, toward the end of his term, Mr. President, put your library here on the South Side. And then when they pick this site in the park, then there's kind of like a split. And, great portion of South Siders are like, well, we didn't ask you to put it in our park. We just wanted on the side. There's plenty of room to put it someplace else. So as a result, lawsuits have been filed and to, to and I think they're all going to be resolved and it's probably likely going to go in a park. We tend to build museums and parks in Chicago since the Art Institute uh, downtown is in, is in Grant Park um, back in 18, since the 1890s. But this one is a, is a little um, tougher. People are um, you know, are, are, are not that thrilled about it, about it, about it being here. So some people are holding their nose and saying, okay, well, at least we'll have the library, Barry, and others are saying, this is an outrage. There are other places where it could, where it could go. Yeah, so I can see why it would be a, a very um, strong, strong debate, shall we say. And when looking at the map of the park, it isn't obvious how it could be put, slotted in without it actually being in the way. <laughs> But I can see why you would have, uh, I mean, the park that we're going to have here in Leeds, Air Park on the South Bank, it's not going to be just a park in, in the style of the other great Olmsted Park of, um, in New York, Central Park, where there aren't, for the most part, buildings within the park. We're going to have a park that has um, offices, residences, um, there's a gallery right in the middle that's made out of the old offices of the Tetley Brewery. So, and some other historic buildings will be kept. So, there, you know, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Do you do park pure? Or in the case of Chicago, of course, you know, the World's Fair 
of the late 19th century gave the precedent for, you know, the whole thing about a park is a park with structures and activities, not just green space for people to stroll. So I can see, I can see both sides of the argument there. <laughs> same, same. I, and um, in the, the Museum of Science and Industry, probably our best known museum, second best known museum, we'll, they'll be neighbors, they'll be close enough that you could throw a rock and hit the, well, you shouldn't throw rocks, but they'll be close enough to, they'll, they'll be close enough to, to each other uh, in, in the same park. But, uh, you know, and also, you know, Obama's from the south side of Chicago. He, he wasn't born here, uh, but he uh, sort of begins his ascent in Hyde Park, our Hyde Park, uh, which is a neighboring community to this park. Uh, his wife was born in the South Shore, which is to the northern, the southern end of the park. So you can see why they they were married there, I think, uh, or they were, uh, you know, or they were, you know, so they, they've got some history, some personal history in, in the park. Um, so you, you can see why they wanted it there. Uh, and 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 in, in, in all fairness, it is in a part of the park. It is in a part of the park on the northern end where it's a little less trafficked. Um, but still, I mean, uh, Olmsted designed that place for a reason. He put things there for a reason. And, and there's a sense from many people that that reason should be maintained. Mm -hmm. We are almost out of time. I feel like we could, we could, and maybe we'd love to have a second follow-up conversation because there's so many more threads and buildings profiled in the, in the book that we haven't gotten to talk about, um, including a fantastic opening, by the way, about your experiences discovering the south side being driven around by your father in the car and, and seeing things which is just some great passages that maybe we can come back and actually read a little bit of that uh, into the program it would be great too um but maybe to, to to end start to think about the this present moment and the future and the kinds of projects that maybe in, in either of your minds could potentially happen in the the years and decades to come um there's one project that, that I'm personally really excited about as a, we're coming to you from a radio station here in East Leeds, which is the, the merging of, of media and the arts and public transportation on the south side of Chicago in the form of the, the 95th Red Line station. So we first just describe that because I think it's just it's such a unique combination. Um, and then from there, maybe we can talk about some of the projects that maybe are floating in the realm of, of possibility or in this strange moment of coronavirus, COVID, climate change, and all the other uh, new factors that we're contending with here in the year 2020 that, that might point forward for both cities, south sides in particular. But Lee, describe this station first, because it's, it's just such an exciting thing. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a new L station terminal uh, for, the L's, for the trains that run south of the, of the city, runs south in the city. Stops at 95th Street, which makes it around uh, nine miles, 10 miles south of, of downtown. And the uh, original um, terminus for this, for this line uh, was designed by Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, which I think did Canary Wharf uh, uh, as, well, as well as many other great buildings uh, in, in, in England. Um, and this was, you know, from 69, I guess, because the L was built in 69. Um, uh, you know, slowly the stations were changed over the years, but this terminus where the, where the train stops, it, it, it's expanded um, and really designed to be a draw uh, for the entire region. 
that part of this because the city actually continues on for another three miles or four miles south. Uh, and the idea is that this terminus will actually be a connecting point someday for trains that will go even further south than, than, than this one. But, you know, one of the things the city wants to do, I mean, this is a predominantly African-American neighborhood, uh, is, is, it, is it, as it begins to fix and repair and restore its, its L, its L stations, it's trying to put the culture in it as well um, that speaks to the neighborhood that, that you're in. So, um, uh, you know, house music, uh, other kinds of music, where I guess it's electronic dance music, where you are, I think it's called, maybe. Um, you know, kind of has its root, root on the south side. The whole DJ culture, uh, the nationally known, kind of has its, one of its roots on the south side. And the idea is to put a, a, a station there, with, with, often with a live DJ, who's spinning records um, while commuters are going to the, to the, to the, uh, to the train. And it's really uh, a, a popular thing. So that, that's the one. But the other thing is, real, real quickly, is we find ourselves in an interesting moment globally um, in the post-George Floyd era, right? I mean, was it, was it Bristol where, you guys, where some guys rolled the slave trader's um, statue into the water? I mean, all this stuff is happening. And, and, and it's really causing us to look at the built environment and begin to address inequities, long-standing inequities um, in the built environment from the statues that we build and save to the neighborhoods that we let drift. And I think what's happening in Chicago, particularly to this mayor, hopefully, is an understanding that Chicago's survivability, its sustainability, its ability, its ability to be Chicago can no longer rest on the Millennium Parks, the Sears Towers, the Johnny Hancock buildings, but really what we do in these neighborhoods. So she's trying to channel investment into these neighborhoods in, in a way that really hasn't been seen here in a while. And, and, and I think that the one thing to watch, among others, is going to be a program called Invest Southwest, where she's putting money into the west and south sides of Chicago. The west side is a small part of the city west of downtown, uh, but, but is also African-American. Uh, and the idea is to, is to invest in the retail districts, the, the high streets, I guess you call them, where you are, and, you're in, and these communities, which many of have, have, have uh, been disinvested and kind of bring them back. And she's just in the early days of this, if you will, right now. So that'd be one big initiative to, uh, to watch because oftentimes, you know, you roll down these high streets and, you, and, and they're empty and you think the rest of the neighborhood looks like this. And then you turn down the street and you see some of the stuff in my book, essentially. And it's like, well, the rest, you know, so, there's, there's, so the idea of bringing these streets back in some way and in these um, in these last months, so we've uh, been joining in with the trend in many cities to try to make more space for for people for active travel, as we refer to it here, for for people on bikes and on foot, rather than everybody assuming that they're going to be able to go everywhere by car and at high speed. Um, and um, of course, uh, we, we do have some public transport here, but Leeds is the biggest city in Europe without a modern transit system, actually. So we also, you know, have this experience, you know, too many people who are car dependent. Um, and the, really the way forward for cities in this era of um, dangerous climate change. I mean, the stuff we've seen coming in from different parts of the United States and other parts of the world these last months. I mean, if people don't believe in it now, when will they? Uh, mm -hmm. So, really, to reduce our dependence on fossil fuel, to re to revalue being in the local area. I mean, I'm I'm so delighted that 
um, many of the people who come on my tours are locals who've lived, some of them have lived in Leeds all their life and who are only now getting to grips with their local area. I mean, Chicago is so much bigger. How much internal tourism is there to do? How much um, can people be satisfied working and living in smaller neighbourhoods? We've got this idea of the 15-minute city that you've no doubt heard about now, Hidalgo in Paris. The idea that you should be able to get everything that you need for normal day-to-day -day life within a 15-minute walk of where you live. And that really does mean uh, putting putting back, mending, doing the what our civic architect in Leeds called the urban dentistry. <laughs> Uh, and and really playing to the human scale and the daily rhythm rather than the blockbuster and the international and the the you know kind of utter wow factor of what had been done in downtowns over over the decades of the early part of the 20th century and onwards um so I think there's, uh, there are many th lessons to be learned amongst uh, all sorts of different kinds of cities of the world. Um, and I think um, Chicago and Bristol and other places are part of C40 cities, aren't they? The cities that have joined together to be in the forefront of, of the climate change work. What we can't now mitigate, we have to adapt to. Um, and architects have a massive part to play in that. Um, as does you know the whole the whole question of social justice in all its dimensions. So, uh, yeah. you know, so, so true, so true. And, and and this burden falls on cities in America because the federal government, for reasons we all know these days, doesn't care. No longer no 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 longer cares. Uh, there, there's this famous headline: Gerald Ford, when New York was going going bankrupt in the 70s, famous headline from the Daily News, I think, in in, in New York, which was. Uh, the, the Ford to City, Gerald Ford, the president, Ford to City drop dead, talking about New, about New York. Uh, that's essentially what the current president feels about all cities, uh, big cities. He sees them as Democrat, Democratic run, therefore they're the enemy. So as a result, mayors are becoming a lot smarter and a lot more powerful in terms of being able to be the agents of this kind of change because the leadership won't come from Washington. Well, with that, we're going to go off into the future in just a moment. I think we're going to end with some Sun Ra music in just a moment here, which is, even though this is music from, from the middle of the 20th century, it's, it's very much, in every respect, futuristic music. Um, It'll be Space is the Place, yeah. uh, which I think sums it up, right, in a way. So a bit of Sun Ra, Space is the Place in just a moment, but first, Thank you to Lee Bay joining us from Chicago. His book, Southern Exposure, if you want to see the great photographs and read the essays, you can get it online. Just search Lee Bay, Southern Exposure. I should mention Bay is spelled B-E-Y, so if you're searching online. Uh, joined by Rachel Unsworth uh, and her fantastic book, Leads uh, Cradle of Innovation, likewise is available and features, again, great essays, photographs, stories about Leeds. But before we go, Either of you, any, any final thoughts or a question you want to send out one to the other before we wrap up? Well, I can't wait to get your book, Rachel. I'll tell you that. Uh, I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to order it the instant we, uh, we, we end this. <laughs> oh, the trouble is it's, um, it's uh, difficult to get hold of at the moment, but um, we'll, we'll organize sending you a copy, Lee. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get a copy to you. It'd be our thank pleasure. You. And thank you very much. It was great to be able to have a, a good read of, of your, your lovely book. Um, that Tony dropped off with me the other day. Fantastic. <laughs> so thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you. All right. So thank you again, Lee Bay, Rachel Unsworth. And now here comes Sun Ra and Space is the Place here on East Leeds FM. Your life is 
Space is the place. Space is the place. Space is the place. Space is the place. Yeah, space is the place. 